Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. Great to have you with us. On the show today, Biden's big win. The U.S. Senate passes the $750 billion climate change and health care bill. Will it help bring down inflation, though, as promised? SoftBank's tech mess, its vision fund, posting a more than $20 billion quarterly loss due to the poor performance of growth stocks. And China's military might. It's extending live fire drills around Taiwan, its biggest show of force in the area in decades. All that and more. But first, a look at global markets, a positive picture overall for stocks. Uh, Wall Street looks like it's set for a higher open after the S&P 500's third straight week of gains. Europe in the green, too, after a mixed Asian handover. U.S. markets coming off a volatile day of trade on Friday, though, after the blockbuster July jobs report lessened the chances of a dovish Fed policy pivot anytime soon. New numbers out later this week could show inflation easing from 40-year highs, but Fed members say they need to see sustained improvements in the data before they ease up on rate hikes. All right, let's get right to the drivers. A major win for the White House, the U.S. Senate passing a massive $750 billion bill called the Inflation Reduction Act. It includes spending of about $370 billion to reduce emissions that contribute to climate change. The House is expected to approve the bill before sending it to President Biden's desk. John Harwood is live for us at the White House. John, great to see you. I know that uh, this bill has a lot in it. I want you to Walk us through what's in it. And I know there were some late sort of last minute changes. There was a little drama at the end of all this. Well, uh, that's right, Allison. You've got uh, about $339 billion of investment over 10 years in renewable energy, incentives for consumers, incentives for producers uh, to switch to power sources like wind and solar and away from fossil fuels. That is a very major step for the American economy, a major step for the global effort to fight climate change because the United States is trying to lead that effort. And if you're trying to lead the effort, you've got to do it yourself. Uh, In addition to that, it's got money to extend the subsidies uh, to make Obamacare health care coverage cheaper. Millions and millions of people have signed up uh, for uh, Obamacare in the last couple of years. Now more than have ever been signed up under uh, the Affordable Care Act. And this makes it uh, cheaper for many of them, including many middle class people. It also has a cap on out-of-pocket costs for Medicare recipients for prescription drugs. 
uh, and the promise of negotiated prescription drug price reductions in uh, future years. That's all paid for by a minimum tax on corporations, very large corporations that uh, have benefited from a lot of deductions, and more money for the IRS to crack down on some of those wealthy tax evaders uh, who benefited from the lack of IRS enforcement over the years. All in all, this was a major victory for the priorities of the Democratic Party, the priorities of President Biden, uh, and so they're celebrating today. Yeah, Democrats clearly voting for it, Republicans not voting for it. What are they saying? What are Republicans saying? Republicans are saying these are tax increases that uh, will uh, harm the economy. They say the spending in the bill will make inflation worse. That's not true. It's not going to make inflation worse. But it's also not true that the uh, bill is going to make inflation much better. Democrats called it the Inflation Reduction Act. That is a PR marketing slogan meant to get Joe Manchin, who'd been concerned about inflation, on board. What you can say about this legislation is that uh, to the extent it affects inflation over a number of years, it might be a small uh, reduction in inflation, but nothing anytime soon, nothing that people will see. Uh, and that's uh, uh, one of the quirks of politics is that sometimes you call something one thing in order to get it passed, and uh, it's not really about that. All right, John Harwood, live for us at the White House. Thanks so much. So it was a victory for Democrats, but as you heard Republicans say, the bill would hurt job creation and push prices even higher. Can the Inflation Reduction Act live up to its name? Christine Romans is going to dig deeper on this. Christine, great to see you. Hi. Yeah, this is called the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, but are we going to see a reduction in inflation, something that's really been nagging at President Biden's approval rating? Well, because of this in particular, not tomorrow. I mean, you talk to economists and they say longer term, it maybe moves the needle slightly in the right direction. And I agree with John Harwood. It's more about branding here in the near term, calling it the Inflation Reduction Act. This is about investments in the economy and in health care, right, in the climate uh, that will have long term benefits for people. And when you talk about, you know, what somebody is paying for things right now, health care, for example, what they're paying out of pocket for their premiums for Obamacare, what they're paying for drugs, for people who are in Medicare, uh, a cap on what they would pay every month for insulin at $35. That is a real tangible thing that families will feel. So I think it's important to remind people that one piece of legislation or one move even from the White House, there isn't some magic switch, right? They can control an economy in terms of gas prices or inflation overall. I do think, though, Allison, the backdrop of this biting 40-year high of inflation is something that colors every kind of conversation we're having here. And I just wanted to bring up that gas prices, energy prices, have actually been tumbling of late. Uh, the most recent AAA national average, $4.06 a gallon. Look how much that's down from a month ago, still above where it was a year ago. But you've seen a swift decline in energy prices. It will be interesting to see if that somehow, you know, fills into the overall uh, inflation debate. We get an inflation number on Wednesday. Yeah. And those lower gas prices, by the way, have nothing to do with this bill at all. Good right. point you make there. I'm curious if any of this will pay off at, at, the, um, at the polls in November for midterm elections, talking about the bill. That is the political question of the day, isn't it? Because it's not just this bill. It's a series of wins that this White House has had. That CHIPS Act is actually sort of a complement to this 
whole climate and, and healthcare piece moving forward, kind of pivoting the U.S. economy in a more sustainable way. Those are long-term benefits that are meant to be felt by the U.S. economy. Will they be felt by November? I guess it depends on how well the messaging goes from this White House, whether Democrats are able to explain to people very clearly what they will feel from this legislation that will help their daily lives and help their their pocketbooks. I mean, I've been trying to boil this down as from the breaker box in your attic or basement, right, to the car in your driveway, to the drugs in your medicine cabinet, to what you're paying if you're on Obamacare. There are real world implications uh, for just about everyone here and a real pivot toward electricity and sustainable living that that you you will you will notice. I mean, you will be noticing advertisements for these tax breaks for for new windows and for solar panels and for for new heating and cooling systems for your home. So there are uh, tangible aspects here that people are going to begin to notice. Will that tip the scales in November? That's the big question. You know, this economy, we'll see Friday what consumer sentiment looks like from the University of Michigan survey. But no matter what happens, mostly it has been a dour impression that people have of the economy two and a half years after the beginning of a pandemic. You can see why. Yeah. Thanks to inflation, a lot of that. Christine Romans, thanks for all that great context. For a fifth day today, China conducted military drills in waters and airspace around Taiwan. The exercises began last week after U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited the self-governing island. Taiwan says China is deliberately creating a crisis. CNN's Will Ripley spoke to Taiwan's foreign minister about the growing tension. Taiwanese officials only received confirmation of when Nancy Pelosi would visit at the very last minute. And they didn't have any input about the timing of the trip, which was postponed after Speaker Pelosi came down with COVID back in April. Now, the timing was crucial because it came just months before a sensitive political gathering in Beijing. China is blaming the timing of the visit on their military drills that have been ongoing ever since. But Taiwan's foreign minister says he doesn't buy it. He says this is just part of a Chinese campaign to intimidate Taiwan and isolate them on a global stage. As Taiwan was lighting up landmarks for U.S. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, China was lighting up the skies and seas around the self-governing democracy, a democracy in danger of a Chinese takeover if Beijing's communist rulers get their way. Pelosi was in Taiwan less than 24 hours, leaving behind a crisis some say she helped create. Was there any concern here in Taipei about the timing of this and whether it might provoke some sort of reaction from China? Uh, we knew that China always reacted badly. Uh, whenever we have uh, good friends coming to visit us, the Chinese government cannot dictate who can come and who cannot come. And they cannot dictate Taiwan who can be our friends or who we should make friends with. But what if China goes further as a result of this visit or using this visit as an excuse? Do the benefits outweigh the risks for Taiwan? One is what China is doing is unwarranted. And what it is doing is upsetting the peace and stability in the Western Pacific. And uh, it's something that should not be welcomed by the international community. Taiwan's foreign minister, Joseph Wu, tells CNN China's war games are aimed at isolating this island. Pelosi, the most powerful politician to visit in 25 years. Is Taiwan in more danger today than it was before Nancy Pelosi's visit? China has always been threatening Taiwan for years. And it's getting more serious in the last few years. And it's always been uh, that way. Uh, Whether Speaker Pelosi visit Taiwan or not, 
the Chinese military threat against Taiwan has always been there. What do you believe China's motivation is, and do you think that their timeline has changed? China's motivation, as I said a little bit earlier, is not going to end at Taiwan. They claim East China Sea, they claim South China Sea, they work very hard to go into the Pacific. Their influence in South Asia and Africa, even in Latin America, uh, is unprecedented these days. And therefore, it has a global ambition. Ambition driven by China's most powerful leader since Mao, Xi Jinping, on track to become president for life, with a burning desire to unify with Taiwan by force if necessary. Has Taiwan's democratic system ever been in more danger than it is today? I can tell you that uh, Taiwan is more resilient than before. Look at Taiwan these days. You know, China is trying to impose trade sanctions against Taiwan, trying to attack Taiwan from military or non-military aspect. But the way goes, the life goes on here in Taiwan. Should people in Taiwan be more worried? If you ask me, I worry a little bit. What do you worry about? I worry that China may really launch a war against Taiwan. But what it is doing right now is trying to scare us. And the best way to deal with it, to show to China that we are not scared. China is defending its actions around the island of Taiwan, saying that they are justified. They are legitimate because they continue to claim that this island is part of China, even though the communist rulers in Beijing have never controlled it. China says that the visit of Nancy Pelosi is going to have a severe impact on the political foundation of China-U.S. relations, and they say that it could gravely undermine the peace and stability of the Taiwan Strait. But here in Taiwan, they say it's China that's doing the undermining of peace and stability, and they need to bring in friends from around the world to see the situation here and help Taiwan if the time comes. Will Ripley, CNN, Taipei. In Hong Kong, the government is reducing the COVID quarantine period for international travelers from seven days to just three days. Chief Executive John Lee saying, quote, we need to balance between people's livelihood and the competitiveness of Hong Kong. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of tourists are stranded on the popular Chinese island of Sanya after a sudden COVID lockdown. Selena Wang joins us live from Beijing. Selena, what more can you tell us first about the reduction in quarantine rules in Hong Kong? So, Allison, this means that arrivals into Hong Kong from overseas, excluding those from mainland China, will now be allowed to spend just three days in hotel quarantine, then followed by four days under home medical surveillance. That is down originally from seven days in a government-designated hotel. Now, during that home quarantine, however, they have to test negative for COVID every single day. Now, the mainland Chinese arrivals, they still have to do seven days of quarantine, either at home or in a government-designated hotel. But officials saying they're in discussions with mainland officials on opening its border with Hong Kong. Now, all of this, Allison, it is just an incrementally positive step for the Hong Kong economy. It is far looser than the requirements for people entering mainland China from overseas, but Hong Kong's requirements are still far stricter than most of the world that's moved on from the pandemic. So many business leaders say this still doesn't go far enough in encouraging more people to travel into Hong Kong, which is such a critical financial global business hub, Allison. Now to all the people stuck on Sanya, what led to the lockdown at this tourist hotspot? 
Well, Allison, the reality now is that just trying to take a summer vacation can become a nightmare experience in zero COVID China. Right now, there are 80,000 tourists trapped in a sudden lockdown in the city of Sanya. This is a popular vacation destination on China's tropical Hainan Island. This is often called the Hawaii of China. And this current outbreak, it is driven by the highly infectious Omicron subvariant, and it's infected more than 1,200 people in Sanya since August 1st. And in China, where they're still adhering to zero COVID, this counts as a major outbreak. In China right now, even one or a handful of cases can send entire communities or even cities into hard lockdown. So Sanya's entire city of some one million people is now under lockdown since Saturday. That means public transportation has been suspended. People can only move around for emergency services. More than 80 percent of flights leaving the city were canceled. That's left complete chaos at the airport. There have even been some videos shared online with crowds of people chanting that they want to go home. Now, authorities here, they're saying that tourists can leave after seven days, but that could be extended if cases don't come down. So people are extremely stressed out right now about can they continue to afford their hotels? Do they continue to have accommodations? Now, the government has said that people with canceled flights can book discounted hotel rooms. But for some families, that's still not affordable. A viral piece of news from State News reported that a family of 13 said they'd have to pay more than 26000 This is U.S. dollars for just an extra week at their hotel. And Allison, the backdrop here is that Sanya, for many tourists there, this was supposed to be their long-awaited escape. After finally being willing to travel during COVID, many of the tourists stuck there actually were from Shanghai who were there to rest and relax after going through that brutal two-month lockdown in Shanghai earlier this year. We spoke to one tourist stuck in Sanya from Shanghai who said, it feels like Russian roulette when you're traveling in China. You're always taking a gamble that your destination might just get locked down. Allison. Trapped on vacation. Who'd ever think that could ever happen? Uh, Selena Wang, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. A ceasefire between Israel and Palestinian militants appears to be holding after three days of fighting. Fuel supplies have re-entered Gaza to power a plant that was shut down during the conflict. Israel says it launched its military operation Friday to target the Islamic Jihad group. Palestinians say at least 44 people, including 15 children, were killed. CNN's Hadass Gold joins us now with more. Hadass, good to see you. Uh, talk with us more about what you're seeing on the ground there. Well, Allison, I'm in Stirot. This is an Israeli town not far from the border with Gaza. And up until last night, this is one of the Israeli communities that was under pretty regular rocket fire. But now, as you can see at the shopping center, life is carefully coming back to normal. And it's really sort of stunning to see this shopping center 24, 48 hours ago was empty. People were mostly staying home and every seemed like few minutes, half an hour, needing to run into a bomb shelter as Israeli uh, planes overhead were flying towards Gaza to carry out their airstrikes against Palestinian Islamic Jihad targets. But as of last night at 1130, there was an Egyptian brokered 
ceasefire that does seem to be holding so far. That's coming much to the relief for so many, both here in Israel and also in Gaza, where they are now able to assess the damage and what happened over these three days of violence. The Israeli military saying that it was targeting Islamic Jihad targets. They said that they carried out these preemptive strikes, especially against the Islamic Jihad leaders. They said that they uh, targeted 140 uh, areas, including things like rocket launchers and tunnels. The Palestinian Ministry of Health saying 44 people were killed in this operation, 300, more than 300 injured, and among those killed, 15 children. Now, Israel insists that most of those killed were militants and said some of the people killed, some of the civilians killed, were due to rockets that misfired. But still, it's it's a high death toll and it's a many injured and there's quite a bit of damage in Gaza. Israel also says that more than 1,100 rockets were launched from Gaza towards Israel, but at least 96% of those were intercepted by the Iron Dome and we have no reports of death. There are some uh, several minor injuries in Israel. Israel, but no major injuries to be reported. And importantly, as you noted, the border between Israel and Gaza had been shut during this conflict, and the already precarious humanitarian situation in Gaza reached a critical point because their only power plant was running out of fuel, and that meant things like hospitals didn't have enough electricity to do what they needed to do to help the people. But as of this morning, that border crossing is now open. The fuel trunks are fuel trucks are now going through uh, to provide fuel to that power plant. Now the question, of course, is, is this ceasefire going to hold for much longer? As of right now, the ceasefire is holding. Most interestingly, though, Allison, is what didn't happen, and that's Hamas. Hamas, which is the militant group that really runs Gaza, Islamic Jihad is a much smaller militant group, they didn't get involved. Although they expressed support for what the Islamic Jihad group was doing, they didn't activate their much larger, much more powerful arsenal of rockets, and that likely helped keep this conflict from turning into something much much bigger, more akin to what we saw in that 11-day war last May. Allison. Okay, Hadass Gold, thanks so much for all of your great reporting. The U.S. Secretary General has said shelling around Ukraine's nuclear power plant is suicidal, and he's calling on the IAEA to be given access to the site. Zaporizhia is Europe's largest nuclear plant and has been operating at reduced capacity since Russian forces captured it in early March. New York police are offering a $3,500 reward for information leading to an arrest in a brazen jewelry heist. Three masked gunmen used a hammer to smash their way into display cases and steal more than $2 million worth of jewelry while a fourth man stood at the door and appeared to be a lookout. All four men fled on foot. Straight ahead, tech trouble. SoftBank reports its biggest ever loss as the sell-off shreds stock valuations. And mapping munitions. The company using artificial intelligence to demine the North Sea. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are on track for a higher open this Monday as investors brace for another busy week of economic data. The U.S. releases the July Consumer Inflation Report. That comes on uh, Friday. Oh, that comes on Wednesday, actually. Wholesale inflation numbers, they come out this week, 
too. I was thinking of consumer sentiment on Friday. Uh, Friday's blowout jobs report, though, easing fears that the U.S. has entered an official recession despite two straight quarters of economic contraction. But a robust U.S. jobs market means the Fed is likely to be in rate hike mode for longer as it tries to bring down prices. Corporations remain A relative bright spot for markets, some 75 percent of companies have reported earnings beats so far this profit season, a bit below the five-year average. Seventy percent of firms are reporting better-than-expected sales. Alessio De Longis joins us now. He is the senior portfolio manager at Invesco. So glad you can join us. Thank you for having me. All right. So I am seeing some conflicting trends emerge here in uh, the data that we're getting and in the economy itself. Um, For example, the job market we found out on Friday is super resilient. So, you know, that's inflationary. But then we've got the inflation narrative going the other way, showing signs of easing, at least if you're at the gas station. I'm curious what your thoughts are here about how these trends are emerging and what you expect to come out or are we going to see any changes with this week's inflation data, CPI specifically? Yes, Alison, it's a very uh, confusing picture. I think the blowout job report, which, which was absolutely fantastic in terms of a pulse, a temperature check on the economy today, reveals that the economy is a lot stronger than even uh, consensus forecast anticipated. But as you pointed out, with that record low unemployment rate and record job creation, what came with it was also rising wages, much more than expected. So we are in a situation where strong demand and strong labor markets are adding additional pressure on inflation on top of the well-known concerns around global supply chain. So that job report is not a forecast, however, because as you pointed out, that only means that the Fed will have to do an even uh, more aggressive job in trying to slow down demand to bring down prices because the Fed only controls the demand side, not the supply side. Therefore, what can we expect? Uh, The Federal Reserve has a particularly different job because monetary policy is a very powerful tool, but it's not a precision instrument. The economy will react to the Fed with a delay, with many quarters of a delay. So the Federal Reserve finds itself now having to increase the the hawkish rhetoric and the, and step up rate increases without really having a pulse on the economy today with respect to the impact that it's having. So what about the Fed's um, likelihood of overcorrecting here? I mean, we just had talk last week that the U.S. is in a recession or at least headed for a recession. What are your thoughts on that? The U.S. printed what we call a technical recession, two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But when you look at the details, it was due to the most volatile and less reliable um, aspects of the GDP report. A large correction in inventories in the second quarter and a large increase in imports in in the first quarter, which is actually a sign of strong demand. What we didn't see, why we don't call it a recession and why the Federal Reserve doesn't believe we are in a recession is that final sales, final consumer demand was still very, very strong, slowing, but still strong. So what we need to see, we think that there is a risk, uh, an increasingly um, uh, highly probability risk uh, that the Federal Reserve will need to go into restrictive territory and will need to strike this tough balance between growing below trend 
and causing a mild recession, uh, it's a very difficult experiment. Bottom line, the Federal Reserve needs to see the unemployment rate rise. And that, no matter how we cut it, is bad news for the economy. But we need to see, as a result of that, prices come down. Inflation, number one concern at the moment. How should investors be positioned right now in this environment? Where are opportunities? Well, it's an environment where we recommend being cautious, especially now past July. July, we had a absolutely uh, fantastic month for risky assets such as equities or risky credit markets. It was a very impressive rally. We think that it gives investors an opportunity to rebalance the portfolios a little bit more defensively, a little bit closer to neutral, so to speak, to a little bit closer to their com- risk comfort zone. Because if we are right that the Federal Reserve needs to go into restrictive territory to cure the inflation problem and the unemployment needs to rise, that in our mind comes with deteriorating earnings growth, deteriorating earnings forecast and lower prices for risky assets. All right. Our thanks to Alessio Delangis, the Senior Portfolio Manager at Invesco. Thanks for your perspective. Thank you. Stay with CNN. The market open is next. Moments ago, on his way to see flood damage in the state of Kentucky, U.S. President Joe Biden was asked if he's worried about China's reaction to Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan. Listen. Keeping a bit of a grip around the whole island now. I am, uh, I'm not worried, but I'm concerned that they're moving as much as they are. But I don't think they're going to do anything more. Can you the line move of the Speaker to go to Taiwan? That was her decision. Thank are you still going to do student loans this month? China has held large-scale military drills off the coast of Taiwan since Pelosi left the island. This is the first time we've heard from President Biden since he came out of COVID isolation for the second time. U.S. stocks are up and running for the first time this week, and we've got a higher open uh, with blue-chip stocks in the lead. The clean energy sector also gaining after the U.S. Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act that includes $370 billion worth of incentives to prod consumers and companies to go green and help slow global warming. In the tech sector, the Nasdaq pairing some of its pre-market gains after a second-quarter revenue warning from chip giant NVIDIA. The company's shares tumbling after warning of weaker results from its gaming chips division. SoftBank reported a record $23 billion loss last quarter, with stock markets falling sharply in 2022. Its tech investments have plunged in value. SoftBank's Vision Investment Fund sold stakes in Uber and Opendoor to raise cash and wrote off its stakes in some startups. The CEO is now suggesting there will be job cuts. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. Claire, great to see you. What more are you learning about this record loss for SoftBank? Yeah, Alison, interesting because in many ways this is an embodiment of really everything that we're seeing in the the tech sector. Just, Just 15 months ago, SoftBank posted the biggest ever annual profit for a Japanese company, and now we see this in reverse, a record quarterly loss driven uh, in part by losses at the vision funds, as you say, driven by those market losses. Also because of the drop in the Japanese yen, a lot of SoftBank's debt is denominated in dollars, so they took a foreign currency hit. Because of that, they're blaming a couple of things, Alison. One, obviously those forces that are outside 
of their control. We're talking about the market forces, the yen. There's also the Chinese regulatory crackdown, which hit uh, fairly significantly one of their holdings, Didi, which actually delisted from the New York Stock Exchange in June, just about a year or less than a year after it, it listed. So there's all those factors outside of their control. But this is also part of what we're seeing now with SoftBank, a new direction. This was a somber, more chastened Masayoshi Son, the visionary uh, who, is, who founded that fund and has led it uh, and taken a lot of risks and gambles. He is now taking a new direction. He's going to be more conservative. He says the company uh, is in defense mode. Case in point, by the way, they approved, apparently, according to the, the filings today, $600,000 worth of new investments in this, this quarter compared to $1.6 billion in the same quarter last year. So much more conservative uh, and much less risk-taking that we're going to see from them going forward. Although he did say, as the market rebounds, they are going to see more opportunities. All right. Claire Sebastian, thanks so much for your reporting. Tech stocks have rebounded from their lows after quarterly results that show resilience to economic headwinds. Amazon and Apple beat Wall Street expectations. Google parent Alphabet made up for an ad slowdown with a strong performance from its cloud unit. Microsoft is even predicting double-digit revenue growth this year. Joining me now is Dan Ives. He's the Managing Director and Analyst analyst at Wedbush. Glad to have you back on the show. Great to be here. So despite all the headwinds of a slowing global economy, rising interest rates, high inflation, uh, better-than-expected mega-cap tech earnings, that helped the Nasdaq climb back more than 12% for July question I have for you, though, is the recent run uh, sustainable if high inflation sticks around even longer than expected? Look, I think that's been the debate. But ultimately, when you look at Apple, Microsoft, big tech stalwarts, you're really seeing demand hold up, specifically on the enterprise, on cloud, and even digital advertising better than feared. I believe in the second half, you know, in terms of the forecast, you know, I think the deck's been cleared where now tech stocks can move higher. You're going to have one-offs like in the video, you know, in terms of what we're seeing across tech. But I believe a bifurcated tech, tech stocks rip second half of the year. Supply chain issues are a huge issue, a heavyweight for, uh, for, tech, for tech companies. Uh, you know, we saw supply chain issues affect Apple and Tesla. Where do companies like that stand with China and supply chain issues? Yeah, it's a great question, especially in light of some of the geopolitical tensions you're seeing with Taiwan and China. I, I would say the supply chain situation is moderating. And I think that's something that came out in earnings from Tesla, from Apple, and even from the, some of the chip makers. That's important because that's really been what I view as the black cloud over the tech sector. You combine that with fundamentals that at least look better than fear, and especially into the second half of the year. Now, I think that could be the one cheap punch that ultimately moved tech stocks higher, despite what I'll call a white knuckle backdrop. Okay, I want to stick with Apple for a second. I, I realize that Apple beat on revenue and profit. It expects its growth uh, to accelerate despite what it calls pockets of softness, which is what sort of was the red flag for me. The other red flag was Apple didn't provide formal guidance for the quarter. How should we all read that? Yeah, and in terms of the guidance right now, I think because of the supply chain, especially because of China, some of the, the zero COVID shutdowns that we saw, I think it was prudent not to provide guidance. We've seen that the last few quarters. I think the key with, with Apple is iPhone 14. I mean, that's going to roll out right now in September. You got 225 million iPhones based on our estimates that have not upgraded in three and a half years. 
combined with the services business, you know, that continues to be a rock Gibraltar stock. And that's why, you know, when you talk about this earnings season, I think it's the most important earnings season for TAC probably in the last six years. Because when you hear from Cook, Nadella, those are the key data points investors want to hear, especially in what's really been you know, a very nerve-wracking year. No tech stock conversation would be complete without mentioning Elon Musk. So let's talk about him for a minute. And it, it's been, what, only two days since Elon Musk accused Twitter of fraud. Now Musk is challenging Twitter CEO uh, Parag Agrawal to a public debate about the percentage of bots on his platform. What's behind this stunt? Look, this continues to be a twilight zone, a circus show in terms of how this is all played out. You know, I think for Musk, really backs against the wall going to the Delaware courts. I think the street really recognizes that assigning a very high probability that Musk was going to have to pay a significant settlement to Twitter or potentially still own Twitter in terms of what comes out of the Delaware court. But this is must be must. The annex have been frustrating for investors, but I do think you're starting to see a decoupling of Tesla's stock from some of the Musk antics and sideshow. Yeah, but in the meantime, we've got Tesla reporting mixed second quarter earnings last month, beating expectations, a three for one stock split, which could obviously open up the stock to more investors. Critics, though, they're saying Tesla shares are overpriced and could plunge more than 50 percent, that its valuation remains remains challenging. Look, I mean, split adjusted stocks gone from 100 to 5000. Right. And so it's always going to be a divisive name. The haters will continue to hate on Tesla. You know, my view is that you cannot treat it as a car company, you treat it as a disruptive technology player. It's all about China. And we're starting to see China rebound into the second half of the year. And when you look at EVs, you know, that's really the focus as we go in 2023. But clearly wood to chop for Tesla, a lot of competition come from all angles. Spotlight's going to be on Tesla front and center in the next few quarters. All right, Dan Ives, Managing Director and Analyst at Wedbush. Always love talking with you. Thank you for your time. Still to come, leftover bombs from World War II litter the seabed around European shores, and they're holding up construction of Germany's new gas terminals. Meet the CEO of a company that's working on a solution after the break. Welcome back. I'm Alison Kosick. Germany is working on reducing its reliance on Russian gas by building new terminals for natural gas tankers and offshore wind farms. But there's a potentially deadly issue here. Over a million tons of wartime bombs and weapons are rusting at the bottom of the sea. Not only are they holding up construction of new infrastructure, they're also a threat to the environment. One tech company, North.io, has been working to map munitions on the ocean floor, creating a database of dangerous items and generate suggestions on how to deal with them, such as recovery and destruction. Jan Vent is the CEO of North.io, and he joins us live now. Welcome to the show. Welcome. Nice to be here. So are you, in essence, professional bomb hunters? You know, what does it mean to actually map and digitize the sea? And why is it important to know what what lies deep in the ocean? 
I know, fortunately, I'm not one of the guys who has to dive uh, down there and to dismantle this kind of bombs. I'm actually myself, I'm a geographer. So um, coming from the perspective of geodata, of spatial information, and I, uh, I had the chance actually to do um, some kind of an internship in the bomb disposal unit of our governmental services. And yeah, there I realized how big the problem of ammunition in our ocean really, really is. And we started with a company to build a cataster, a system for mapping this problem of ammunition in our oceans worldwide. With Berlin planning to build liquefied natural gas terminals, are you finding that there's now an urgency to clear our oceans and seas of these munitions, an urgency that maybe you haven't seen before? Uh, I mean, this urgency is already there for a long time. It's just the point that we are now realizing what the amount of the problem is. There are several um, different kind of perspectives on the issue. I mean, now we're talking about the energy transition, for sure, also the problem of um, the gas supply here uh, in Europe. But um, in general, our energy transformation going into, especially also offshore wind, going into renewables is um, affected by the munition. So there's a delay in um, building our system of uh, renewable energies here, especially in the terms of um, offshore wind, because munition is simply um, on the way when you want to construct different kinds of um, machines and infrastructure in, in our oceans. Another threat that is actually coming from, from munition is the fact that uh, there is an environmental effect, but I can explain this a bit more in detail as well. Yeah, please do, because, you know, we've got, you know, there are lots of problems that come with having unexploded uh, munitions sitting at the bottom of our oceans and seas. Um, there's, as you said, the environment, you know, ecosystems. There's also economies and, and shipping uh, issues as well. Walk us through that. For sure. I mean, the environmental problem, that's something we understood in the last 10 years. Yeah? So there was uh, different kinds of research activities conducted now, um, especially also in the European uh, waters, where we try to understand what's the effect of corroding munition to the uh, environment. How does it affect our flora and fauna? How does it affect our fishes and mussels? And different kinds of studies actually have shown that um, this rusting munition is releasing TNT. So TNT is actually measured now in our water column. There were even experiments carried out here in front of our city of, of Kiel in the uh, water where there was an effect um, that you can measure TNT compounds in mussels. So even fish showed remnants um, of, of TNT. And several other studies were showing that there is an um, amount of TNT, a very, very small amount, that's out of question, um, but there is an amount more or less everywhere in the water in the German North Sea and the German Baltic Sea. So there's a huge effect actually going, uh, having um, munition has on our environment. And this effect is probably getting, getting worse because we expect that the big amount of munition is going to grow in the next 30 years. And why do you say that? Why do you think it will grow? I mean, there is a huge amount. We are talking just in the German waters about 1.6 million tons. And I think it's important to understand what 1.6 million tons means. It's a train that's two and a half thousand kilometers long that was mostly dumped after the Second World War into our, our oceans. So there are huge um, dumping sites, so where they're partly lying up to 100,000 tons in one place. But there's also lots of dispersed munition which was uh, brought into the environment by, by um, sea battles, for fights, for example. Uh, 
And we see now when we map this uh, munition with autonomous systems with ships, that there is an increase in the corrosion. So the munition is corroding more and more. And the scientists expect that we are facing the corrosion peak actually in around 30 years. So that's why we also expect that there is the peak of um, TNT that goes into our water column in around 30 to 35 years. I'm curious if there was now, starting now, a concerted effort to clear our waters of these musicians, how long would it take? Oh, that's a very good question. I mean, if you do it with today's technology, it will probably last over 100 years. But um, we are facing um, more and more technological developments also in autonomous systems, um, for example. And from our perspective, from my perspective, it's the most important that we start. Yeah? As soon as we get some kind of money into the system, getting money into businesses that are cleaning up uh, on a large scale this munition as well, technological developments will take place. So autonomous systems will um, overtake, hopefully in the future, quite some of the tedious work that is still done um, with uh, divers and this will also then um, yeah make us faster in our energy transition because everywhere really every piece where you want to build infrastructure in the sea surface you have to uh, check for for munition components mm -hmm. there was even now the case that in the states where you started to build offshore wind industry also in front of new york seven munition pieces were, were found in this offshore wind park hmm. 100 years, that's a long time, but you got to start somewhere. And you are Jan Vent, CEO of North IO. Thanks so much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Coming up after the break, Queen Bee reigns supreme. Beyonce's renaissance is topping the charts. Details next. Beyonce isn't breaking our souls, but she is breaking the charts. Her love letter to dance and house music has been flying high ever since its release. Renaissance, the singer's seventh studio album, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 Albums chart, making it the year's biggest debut by a woman. Rahel Solomon joins me now to talk more about this. Rahel, great to see you. From what I'm seeing, am I right here? All seven of her solo albums have hit number one. Woo, now that's, that's Queen B. <laughs> she is the queen, reigning supreme, as you pointed out, Allison. Yes, you were exactly right. This is her seventh solo album and the seventh time she has reached this milestone. It's also the largest streaming week for her of her career. So she is clearly giving energy. And all of my Beyonce fans, you know what I'm saying here. Look, the, the album is very inclusive, right? I mean, it pays tribute to uh, dozens of black women icons in the music industry from uh, Jill Scott from my hometown of Philadelphia to Erica Badu to Sade. So it's very inclusive. It also shows a lot of love to the LGBTQ community. So it's clearly resonating. And it's interesting. I mean, I think that it's a, it's a very upbeat album, sort of makes you want to go to the gym, but it has something for everything, musically, lyrically, uh, in terms of how it's produced. So yeah, it's a huge album for her, only second to Harry Styles this year in terms of album sales. And Allison, not to be a tease here, but this is just act one. I mean, we're expecting an act two and this sort of release, we're expecting an act three. So we might be talking about Beyonce a lot this year. She's already done so much. What, what are her other acts? 
Well, that's the thing. We don't really know. what. what will it be a visual album like Lemonade was? Will it be uh, something entirely different? Because we know she is a, a true creative, right? So it could be any sort of thing. And she has her hands in so many pots, of course, uh, with Ivy Park and uh, just really her own production company. So it could mean a lot of different things. And that's why I think we're all sort of on the edges of our, our, of our seats or sort of on our toes. And if there is one thing Beyonce does is certainly keep people on their toes in terms of what to expect. Well, we'll be watching and waiting along with you, Rahel Solomon. Thanks so much. (laughs) And that's it for the show. I'm Allison Kosick. Follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Thanks for joining us. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.